There we go. We are uh, in uh, the middle of Romans chapter 8. We've been there for... Uh, we've been in Romans 8 now for a few weeks and uh, we will be for a while yet. Uh, but we... Uh, uh, today, we are... Uh, uh, Looking at verses 28 and 29 and 30, supposedly, we'll see how far we get. You know, I keep I keep making it fewer and fewer verses to, to tackle every week, and I uh, still have a challenge. But this one will be a real challenge for us. Uh, 28, of course, is a very well-known verse to all of us, probably, most of us. And uh, as, uh, as 29 and 30 are as well, for different reasons. And uh, so those are... Those are what are on the table for us today. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Last week we looked at uh, we looked at verses 23 through 27, and uh, so we'll review that in just a minute. Some of the things we talked about last week, but let's go back to uh, let's go back to verse 18 and read down through verse 30, just once again to kind of get the context of everything that we're talking about and uh, then we'll review a little bit and move forward from there. He says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails or suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for that what we do not see, we with perseverance wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay? Uh, so look back there, uh, particularly at verses 23 through 27 or so, and kind of 
refresh your mind a little bit about some of the things we talked about last week. What do you remember some of the key things we talked about last week? The first one you bring when you talk about the first fruits of the Spirit, you brought up Pentecost. Uh huh. And uh, so I was writing feverishly in my margin, the Bible here, that uh, Pentecost was the first fruits feast, and that uh, two other events were tied to Pentecost, which is deliverance of the uh, Ten Commandments, uh-huh. uh, the delivery of the law, and okay. later in the New Testament age, the uh, delivery of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The Holy Spirit from the Jesus and Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of that interesting connection between uh, Pentecost and the giving of the Spirit and the idea that the Holy Spirit is really the first fruits of our inheritance uh, that we're going to receive. So it's just kind of a fun connection to think about. I, uh, but what else? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. We <clears throat> these are things we're absolutely confident of, and that's really kind of the theme that he's building on here in this particular this last half of Romans chapter eight is the certainty of this hope that we have. What is the hope that he's talking about specifically in this passage? Excuse me? Okay, our adoption. Uh, and uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, paradox here when he talks about our adoption because one of the things we talked about last week is in our Christian experience, we, we have this phenomena of the, what we call the already and not yet. There are some things we already experience as believers and there are other things we have not yet experienced. And adoption kind of fits in both those categories as we see here in Romans chapter 8. He's already talked about the fact that we have already received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So in one sense, we are already God's children. We have already been adopted. But there's another sense in which he's talking about this adoption which is yet to come, which as he says uh, uh, is the, uh, the redemption of our bodies. So there's, there is a an adoption that we have already experienced, and yet there's an adoption that we are yet to experience. So there's the already and the not yet. And so the hope specifically that Paul is talking about here is this thing that we're waiting for, this redemption of our bodies, the adoption as sons, or in another place here in the passage, he talks about, about how creation is waiting for the, for our revelation as the sons of God. Okay, so so he's talking about this future time when we who are God's children, we who have trusted Christ, will ultimately be revealed to be in a, in a glorious and spectacular way. But will be revealed to be God's children, and our bodies will be redeemed, and they'll be changed, and we'll no longer be walking around with all these problems and aches and pains and all these other things. Uh, that we feel, uh, but all of that is going to be changed and we're going to experience this glorious new reality. That's what he's talking about in this passage. So it's this idea of the revelation of the sons of God for which all of creation is waiting and for which 
we are waiting too. What else have we talked about? The biggest question I have on that is what I'm saying for my son to be tall. I'm not used to it, you know. Or the alternate question is, will I finally be taller than you? <laughs> you know, I'm not used to having to look up to people. <laughs> yeah. I didn't do that, by the way. <laughs> so, uh, well, I'm curious as to what, when I was looking at this passage earlier this morning, verse 26, and he says, and in the same way, mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny because in my Bible, and I've had this Bible since, since I was saved in the 70s, and that verse starts at the top of the next page, verse 26, and I never made the connection that that Probably goes with something. <laughs> okay, so, good. Good, yeah. Uh-huh. You read down the bottom, then you go to the next one. Yeah. And I thought, wait a minute, what's he talking about? Okay. So I'm sure you talked about that, and I, since I missed the lesson. Yeah. Well, actually, we did talk about it. We didn't talk about it a lot, but let's build on that a little bit. That's a good question. Uh, because actually, there's a couple of views as to what, he, what he's referring to there when he says, in the same way. And the possibility is that he's just been talking uh, in verse uh, 25. He's been talking about this hope that we have. And then in verse 26, he says, in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. And and so uh, one view is that the same way is a reference to a reference to hope. So that as this hope helps us deal with our sufferings in the same way, also, the Holy Spirit helps us deal with suffering. That's one view. I prefer the second view. Uh, because later in the verse he talks about groanings and he talks about the Holy Spirit groaning. And that's a theme he's already been developing in the passage because he's already talked about how creation is groaning, waiting for our redemption. And we are groaning, he says. We're waiting for this redemption. And he says, in the same way, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. So the specific weakness he talks about is that we don't know how to pray as we should. And... Uh, and then he says the way the Spirit does that is by groaning with these groanings too deep for words. So there's a couple possibilities there. And I, like I say, I prefer the second as the explanation is that, is that just as creation is groaning and just as you and I are groaning, waiting for this thing, the Holy Spirit is helping us in our weakness by also in the same way groaning with us, you know. And, uh, and we've all experienced that. I'm sure we've all experienced times in our life when, when our struggles or our conflicts or our sufferings, whatever they may be, whether they're physical or financial or relational or job-related, there are times when we just... You know, the only way you can express it is just to groan. It's just, you, you just feel just a, an inclination just to groan in this situation. And it's so comforting to think that that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's actually in us. He's indwelling us. And, and, he's, and, and as He is in us, He is groaning with these groanings that are, He says, too deep for words. or You cannot be expressed with words. And, uh, and so that's, uh, I think, the idea that He's developing there. In the same way that we groan, the Holy Spirit within us is also groaning. Okay? In that context, then, the Holy Spirit is suffering. Yes, and we did talk about that last week. Yeah, and like I said last week, you slipped out by this time to go uh, play the drums. But uh, uh, some people—I don't know where they get this—but some people have the view that God can't suffer, and I think Scripture is very clear that God does suffer and that God can suffer. That's the whole point of the cross: is that God can and in fact does suffer. 
And, uh, and so I think, yes, the Holy Spirit within us, while we are still in these unredeemed bodies, is groaning uh, in suffering with us. And that's a tremendous, to me, it's a tremendous encouragement and comfort. So, anything else from last week that you want to bring up before we go on? These are good things to prime the pump with. Going, going, <laughs> gone. Okay, well, let's go on then. He, we come now to verse 28, which is, of course, for many people, a favorite verse of Scripture and for obvious reasons. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And then in the next couple of verses, he begins to explicate or explain to us uh, what that purpose is that he has. There's, uh, just as we're approaching these verses, there's several things I want to say just kind of by way of introduction. Uh, and, and one is that uh, these verses are just loaded with all kinds of theological significance, okay? Uh, verse uh, 28, uh, 28, of course, like I say, is a verse that's loaded with uh, meaning and encouragement for us. Uh, verses 29 and 30, uh, he talks about a foreknowledge and predestination and calling. Uh, uh, he talks about uh, his, uh, God's purposes, what his purposes are. Uh, he talks about justification. He talks about glorification. These are all really profound theological issues. And, and on some of these points, as believers, there's a great deal of unanimity and agreement. And on some of these points, uh, there's a lot of divergence of view and divergence of opinion. And there probably is, even here in, in the room this morning, there's probably a difference of view on some of these things about foreknowledge or predestination and things like that. So there's a, there's a wide variety of, of opinion on some of these things and there's great agreement on some of the other things like the glorification and things like that. Uh, and because that is true, a lot of times when we approach this passage, we want to really analyze and understand what does he mean by foreknowledge? What does he mean by predestination? What does he mean by calling? And we might spend a great deal of our time discussing those issues and debating those issues because there, there is a, a great deal of, of variation as to how Christians view those things. Okay, And I think that's important to do. I think it is important to think about those issues. I think it is important to study them in depth. And I think it is important to discuss them among ourselves and wrestle with those things. The problem is, I think, as we approach these verses, that when we do that, oftentimes we get so preoccupied with the minutiae, if I can use that word, not to imply that these theologies are minute or unimportant, but we get so preoccupied with trying to resolve these questions about what exactly does he mean here, very important questions, as I say, that oftentimes we miss the whole point of the passage. It's, in other words, it's a, it's a classic case of, of not seeing the forest for the trees. That we can get so busy trying to agree with one another or figure out with one another what does he mean by some of these terms that we miss Paul's overall point. So what I would like to do as we approach the passage is 
is I want to try to primarily focus on the overall point. We'll, we'll touch on these other things a little bit because we need to. And like I said, they are important issues. But I don't want us to miss Paul's overall point because this is a tremendous passage of encouragement that you and I need. We desperately need what Paul is saying in these verses because every one of us is, has been, or will be struggling with overwhelming difficulties and, and, and uh, conflicts and struggles in our life. And Paul's issue here is what, what can we know for certain when we are struggling with the reality of the sufferings that we experience because we are still in these unredeemed, unglorified bodies. Okay? And, and that's the point Paul's getting to. And these other points are simply the vehicle by which he gets to that point. Okay? So they are important, but let's not lose, uh, let's not lose the big picture uh, in, uh, in uh, spending too much time, uh, at least in our approach, in dealing with uh, these, uh, these uh, uh, what we might think of as his subpoints as he moves towards that. So, so, so that being said, what I'm saying is, I want to focus. I want to try try to primarily focus us on the big picture, uh, and and not spend too much time on these other issues. Uh, although there is a place and there is a time to do that. Okay, so I want that to be uh, very clear. Uh, the other thing, I, another thing I want to point out is that. Uh, for, for those of you who know me, some of you are new to the class, so you really have no clue who I am or what I think. Uh, but some of you have known me. You've heard me teach for many years. And so you know where I'm coming from. Uh, so I'll, let's just be uh, up front here. It's, a, it's always good to kind of get things out in the open and up front that I approach this passage as somebody who does not hold to a primarily Calvinistic view of Scripture and of uh, salvation. So I am not, I do not classify myself as a Calvinist. I used to. I used to call myself a four-point Calvinist. Uh, but the more I studied Calvinism, uh, I later realized, well, I'm not really four-point. I'm kind of a three-point. And the more I studied Calvinism, then I started saying, well, you know, really, I, I'm not sure about that. I'm, you'd probably classify me as a two-point. Well, by the time you get down to two-point, you might as well give up the word Calvinist, okay? So, uh, so I don't classify myself as a Calvinist, uh, but... Uh, but I have benefited tremendously and continue to benefit tremendously from the writings and the teachings and the preachings of many great Calvinist people that all of us love and admire and enjoy. And, uh, and, and of course, I have many Calvinist, uh, close, very close Calvinist friends. And so, uh, so I don't consider Calvinism my, my adversary or my enemy. I just don't agree with them on certain points, and that's where I'm coming from. But I know some of you here in the class are Calvinistic, and that's fine. That's good. But what I like about this passage, which is a classic to the Calvinists, is a classic Calvinist passage. Uh, what I like about this passage is that we get to Paul's main point, whether you view this passage from a Calvinist perspective or not. Uh, that's not to say that these that these other points of predestination and and uh, and calling and and foreknowledge it's not that those aren't important or that those are irrelevant to Paul's main point, but that whichever whichever view you hold, you can still arrive at Paul's main point, 
which is that God has a purpose that He is working in your life, and it is set in concrete. Okay? And uh, so that's where we're going. That's uh, the direction we're moving in. Now, one of the things, and, and what I just said kind of alludes to this, one of the other things I want to point out is, is the reason I like this passage. The reason this passage, and so many believers do, and the reason this passage is such an encouragement to me and, and to many people is because, as Paul has already established in the earlier verses in Romans 8, we are not yet fully redeemed. Okay. We are still in this unglorified body. And, and what that means is that we are all still currently suffering. And we all know that. We all experience it as believers. And I don't know what you were thinking when you got saved. You know, some of us, when we got saved, might have thought, okay, all the suffering's over with. You know, it's a smooth ride from here on out. You know, but, but we discover quite quickly that is not the case. Okay? And so we encounter all kinds of suffering. We encounter sometimes uh, lesser issues. You know, the, the, the frustration yesterday as I'm running behind schedule and I get out. Uh, did any of you have the privilege of driving Norman streets yesterday? You know, it was chaos. You know, you couldn't get anywhere quickly. And I was in a hurry. Everything I was doing yesterday, I was in a hurry. And, and uh, Norman traffic just was a total, you know. So there's that kind of suffering. You know, I, I think when we get to heaven, we are not going to have traffic jams. You know, I honestly believe that. Okay, so, so there's that kind of suffering. But that kind of stuff is minuscule compared to some of the suffering that we all endure. Of sickness, of broken relationships, of lost loved ones, of crises that overwhelm us, that swamp us, that inundate our minds and our emotions and leave us gasping for air. And, and that is just the reality of our experience. And so as we start out in the Christian life, we start out with a, you know, all this anticipation and hope. Like he said in the verses we were looking at last week, he said, he said you know, we were in hope we were saved. I mean, that just... That was it. You know, when we were saved, our lives were, we were full of hope and we had this anticipation of what God was going to do and we were looking forward to what God was going to do. But as life goes on and we experience this ongoing suffering, eventually that suffering can begin to take a toll on us, can it? Eventually it begins to wear on us. And eventually it can begin to wear down our hope. And Paul's point here in Romans 8 is that's not the way it ought to be. The suffering is there. The suffering is real. And and as I was thinking about this yesterday, as I was preparing my lesson, I, I was thinking about how... I don't know if any of you feel this way. I'm sure some of you do because I do and, and I'm just, you know, I'm normal, right? So everybody else. So, so sometimes it just feels like you're losing your grip on it, right? It feels like that hope that you've had, it's just kind of slipping away. From, and I was thinking of a great illustration of this, you know, and, and Shannon will appreciate this, my niece here, because she's, 
uh, Steve grew up in Kansas, you know, and and so of course everybody was expecting uh, during the during the uh, the uh, uh, basketball playoffs, they're expecting Kansas, of course, to do really great, and uh, and much to uh, the pleasure of those of us who live in Norman, they didn't, and uh, but. Uh, since I have a daughter who graduated, got her master's degree from Wichita State, it became quite a surprise and a pleasure to discover Wichita State doing so great in the uh, in the uh, in the playoffs, right? And uh, and so eventually they advanced to the final four, and on the you know on the horizon is Louisville. You know I had to go back and Google this so I could remember these teams. You know, uh, but uh, so uh, so. I, I, I happen to watch, and some of you may also. I happen to watch uh, Louisville's uh, championship game in the. They're in the Big East, is that right? The conference there, and I think they're in the Big East. And in this championship game for the Big East, and I don't remember who they were playing, but it was late in the game, and they were down uh, by 16 points. Okay, and then after, uh, you know, over a period of time, as you know, as you're getting closer and closer into the game. They're just kind of whittling away that 16-point lead that the other team had, and eventually, uh, eventually they won. Okay, and so that moves them on in the tournament in the in the uh, uh, in March Madness in their seed and that sort of thing. And so then they go through, and in in several of their games this year, they came back from from nine point or more deficit and won their game, okay? And so, and they did it in their game with, uh, for the Big East Championship. Okay, so then in the final four, they end up, and some of you remember this, and some of you don't care anything about this sort of stuff, but in the, in the, in the final four, they ended up matched up with Wichita, okay? So here's Wichita and, uh, and Louisville, and they're playing in the uh, semifinal game, I guess it was. They're playing, and... And Wichita is just really playing well. And we get into the fourth quarter, and they have, I think it's like a 12-point lead, right? Okay. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, because I'm rooting for Wichita State here, okay? So I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, but I know what they did in the Big Ten, in the Big, uh, Big East game. I remember that, and I remember how they beat them. Because they were six. You know, so I have this nervousness about it, Okay. And so then I'm watching the game, and Wichita's got this lead, and they're really playing well, and we're into the fourth quarter, and, and they've got still got like a 12-point lead or whatever, and I'm going, okay, they're going to pull this out, okay? Wichita's going to do this. And then I watched Louisville start whittling it away. They, you know, they didn't even have to get close before I knew it was over. <laughs> you know, I, just, I could feel it slipping away. And we've all watched sporting events where we, you know, the team we're rooting for has had a great lead, and we've probably all had that feeling of what it's like to feel it slipping away from us. The tragedy is that oftentimes as Christians, that's how we feel. The tragedy is that as Christians, oftentimes we feel like it's slipping through our fingers. And what Paul is assuring us of here is that is not what's happening. So in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the, in spite of the circumstances, excuse me, in spite of the suffering, in spite of our own multitude failures, the triumph and the victory is not slipping out of our fingers. Because he says, we know 
that all things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And uh, as I uh, thought about this, sometimes Paul starts off, you know, and he'll, he's getting ready to say something, and he'll say, now, we know this. And I'll go, oh, really? <laughs> How is it I know this? You know, like, uh, like the one point where Paul says, we know we shall judge angels. And I go, oh, yeah, I was just, you know, I was, when I was born, I knew I was going to judge angels. And I go, oh, yeah, how do we know this? You know, well, the first thing I ask when I read this verse is I go, OK, how do I know that all things work together for those who love God? Well, there's a couple reasons, actually, why we know this and why he would expect the Romans to whom he is writing, whom he has never met. He's never been there. He's never taught them. He's never written them another letter that we know of. So how does he know that they know that all things work together for good? In other words, it's like Paul expects this to be just a kind of a what we call a brute fact, <laughs> you know, something you don't have to argue because it's so obvious, it's so conspicuous, it's just so basic, it's something you don't have to argue. Well, of course, we have ample examples in the Old Testament. And, you know, one of them we, we discussed and talked about at length when, when, we did our, when we did our study in Genesis and we looked at uh, Genesis chapter 50 there at the end and Joseph is encountering his brothers and they're freaked out when they find out it's Joseph. And, and then, of course, later after their father dies, they're real nervous because they think Joseph is going to take revenge. And Joseph says to him, he says, about all that stuff you did to me, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order that many lives might be saved. Classic example of this principle that all things work together for good. Somehow, Joseph understood that. Somehow, with everything that Joseph went through, and he went through a ton of stuff, he just knew that all things work together for good to those who love God. And, and then there's, there's Jeremiah. And he's, Jeremiah's writing in, uh, I think it's in Jeremiah 29, he's writing to, uh, 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 prophesying to the people of Israel in captivity. And, and, he's, and, and he promises them, he says, in, in, in all this stuff you're going through, he says, God has a purpose for you of welfare and not of calamity. I remember one time I was, I, I, I was a, uh, there was a friend of mine and he had, been, he had been out of work for a long period of time. He'd been looking for a job for two or three months. And, uh, and I was trying to encourage him one time and I brought up that verse in Jeremiah and I said, I said David, I just want you to remember that God has plans for you of welfare and not of calamity. And he just looked at me like, that's the last thing I needed to hear. But that's not, of course, what he means uh, in that verse. But God has a plan of welfare and not of calamity for us. Okay? And... Uh, and so throughout the Old Testament, we see this. But as we're going to see in these verses that we're looking at, that it's just our knowledge of God. Our knowledge of God and our knowledge of His purposes. What is God's purpose for His children? 
And if we know, if we understand God, and if we understand the purposes of God, then we can be confident that everything in our lives somehow works together for good. And we're going to figure out what that good is. We're going to figure out what is the purpose of God? What is the good thing that God is doing? But I want you to notice that Paul does not say that all things are good. All things are not good. There are some things that are evil. And there are some things that are so evil that it staggers our mind just to try to be able to figure out how in the world could this possibly turn out ultimately to the good. But the teaching of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that although all things are not good, God and His providence and God and His sovereignty is working, coordinating, all things in the life of those who love Him. This promise only applies to those. In the life of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, that God is working all things for good. And so whatever things that you are experiencing now and struggling with now and that I'm struggling with now and I go, God, this has been going on so long and I don't know. Yeah, why don't you solve this problem for me? And why don't you take care of this why don't you fix this relationship? Why don't you, why don't you solve this dilemma that I'm struggling with and fix this? You know, why don't you heal my body so I can function the way I ought? You know, whatever it is that I am suffering with, I have this confidence. It is the uniform testimony of Scripture. I have this confidence that God has a purpose. And that purpose is good. And that He is working all things in my life and in your life to accomplish that good purpose. And as we've already established from earlier verses in Romans 8, to the degree that your mind has been staggered by your sufferings, that will not compare with the glory that is to be revealed in you when you are adopted finally and your body is redeemed. And creation itself will rejoice to see it. That's what he's telling us. So, so we do know. We do know, although when, at times when we're suffering and we're overwhelmed by suffering, we lose sight of it. And it may seem like the triumph or the victory is slipping through our fingers. We do know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And we are called according to His purpose. Well, then he tells us who it is for whom this is true. Because this is not true for all people. There are many millions of people, billions of people, for whom this is not true. For whom all things are not working together for good. Because Paul is very specific who this applies to. It is for those who love God. Who are called according to His purpose. Now, there's a couple interesting things about this phrase when Paul uses this term, those who love God. 
And one of them is how rarely Paul talks in these terms. He actually only says something like this about two or three other times in all of his writings. Paul does not typically talk about our love for God. He talks more about God's love for us, right? And I don't know why that is. I don't know why the Holy Spirit directed him to write the way he wrote. But he mentions, he mentions our love for God a couple times in Corinthians and he mentions our love for Christ and I think it's in Ephesians. Uh, but so only two or three other times does he mention this. So it kind of stands out as kind of a unique way of Paul talking about things. Okay? That's not to say that our love for God is unimportant. It is, in fact, our greatest commandment, is it not? That we are to love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. So it's not that it's unimportant for some reason Paul uh, does not address it very often, but he talks about those who love God. And the other thing that's interesting uh, is, I don't know how your translation, your particular translation, uh, translates verse uh, 28 and what order it puts things in. But in the Greek, the statement that uh, he says, he starts out in the Greek saying, we know. And then the next thing he says is, for those loving God or for those who love God. Okay, And the significance of that is, in my translation, it kind of puts this idea of those who love God at the end of the verse. But in the Greek, it's actually at the beginning of the passage, the beginning of the statement, the beginning of the verse. Okay, And the significance of that is that, that typically in Greek, when they're writing in Greek, they do all kinds of things with word order and word orders, you know, really different than it is in English. And uh, because they've got ways to figure out the meaning without putting words in a particular order. But typically when an idea or a thought is placed at the beginning, it's because it's really important. It's priority. Okay. And so it's like Paul is saying this idea of those who love God is really, it's kind of the important point that he's making about who it is for whom all things work together for good. It's for those who love God. And if you are among those who love God, and then he gives another uh, qualifier, and it's describing the same group of people, actually. He says, for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay. Now, the reason he adds this kind of qualifier on the end those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, is because this idea of being called according to the purpose is central to the point he's going to make. Okay. So he's identified who it is this is true about. It's for all of us who love God. And what is also true about all those who love God is they are called according to God's purpose. And this purpose of God is what makes us so confident in our suffering that ultimately we are going to experience this great good, this great revelation of the sons of God, this redemption of our body, the adoption of sons. Okay, so, so the idea is this applies to you if you love God. And if you are a child of God, you love Him. That's just given. Okay, That's just given. Do you love Him like you ought to love Him? <laughs> There's not a one of us who does, is there? There's none of us who love him. But the, but the mark of the believer is that he or she loves God. And he does or she does from the moment of conversion. It is just the mark of the believer. 
They love God. And for all those who love God, all things work together for you. That doesn't mean I'm not sometimes angry at God, unhappy with God. I know that sounds like blasphemy, but I've been unhappy with God on more than one occasion in my life. I've given Him a piece of my mind on more than one occasion in my life. But when all is said and done, I tell Him, God, You're good. And I'm glad You're my God. Well, so He says, He says, we know that all things work together for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, when He says we're called... And he's going to develop this idea of call a little bit more in the next verses. But, but I was thinking about, he's talked about we who love God. And then he says those who are called. And I was thinking, well, why did God call me? Why did God call you? Now, however you view call, you know, whether you view call, you view the call as this irresistible call that, that you, you, know, you had no choice in it, God called, and you just irresistibly must respond, or whether you view the call here as an invitation, whether you view it as an efficacious call, or whether you view it as a general call, however you view it, the question is, why did God do it? Why did He call you? Well, He actually had several reasons. One of them we'll find out is this purpose, but, but one of the reasons He called you is because He loves you. He just loves you. I know it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me. You know, time and time again, I have to go, okay, now let me, let me get this straight, God. You love me? You love me? Why? You know, I, you know, I can't give him any reasons, but I know he does. And that was one of the reasons why he called me. So in one sense, we could read this passage if we'd like to. It's taking a little bit of liberty with it, but we could read this verse that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those whom God loves. And then he says in verse 28, excuse me, verse uh, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren in whom he Predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, let's tackle verse 29. This ought to, this ought to give us some meat to chew on for a while. He says, he says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Brings up two big words that Christians have been arguing about for you know two millennia. Okay. And, uh, and I'm going to settle the whole debate here for you here in the next five minutes. <laughs> you all are relieved to know that, aren't you? And we'll have every theologian in America beating down my door to crucify me. Uh, but uh, he just brings up out of the clear blue sky this idea of foreknowledge. I mean, I say it's out of the clear blue sky. It's kind of one of those brute facts. It's kind of one of those basic things, okay? He's given us nothing earlier to lead into this idea of God's foreknowledge. He doesn't tell us what he means by it. He doesn't explicate it at all here. He doesn't explain it to us. He just thinks we know what he means when he says he 
uh, those whom God foreknew. Well, clearly, who are the ones whom God foreknew? Well, it's the people he was just talking about. Those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Okay. And then, his, and then he develops his argument. And his argument is, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Now we need to think about this idea of foreknowledge a little bit. I'm going to have to kind of work on our theology about God. Okay. One of the cardinal biblical concepts about God, one of the things we as Christians hold to about God, it is central to our theology. If you do not believe this, you are a heretic. Okay? This is one of the central things we believe about God, and that is that God is transcendent. The transcendence of God. What does that mean? Above or beyond. Okay? And when we speak about God's transcendence, we're talking about God being above and beyond everything. He's He's not in anything. He's not contained by anything. He is above and beyond. Everything else besides God is created. Everything besides God is down here. And God is up here. He is transcendent. Okay. And, and this is where our minds start to short circuit about God. Because since you were a little crumb cruncher in, you know, in, in my wife's kindergarten class, although none of you were in my wife's kindergarten class. Well, actually, some of you may have been. Uh, <laughs> uh, but... But, but, you, but you always heard that God was in heaven, right? And heaven was a place, right? I mean, we all think heaven's a place and God is in heaven. And so we think of God being somewhere in space. And where's heaven? Well, it's up there somewhere, you know. <clears throat> well, I hate to disabuse you of what your kindergarten teacher taught you in Sunday school, okay? There is a sense in which God is in heaven, but God is... Beyond, he is he is outside of his creation, and if heaven is his creation, he is outside of that. He is beyond that. You say, "Well, where is that?" I don't know where that is. There is no where because we're not talking about where because where is creation. God transcends his creation, and I know at this point your mind's going, "I can't not think of a place that isn't in space." Okay, well that's because you are. A material being. That's the way God created you. So, of course, you can't think beyond or outside of that, right? You think, where are we going, Rick? We're clear out of Romans 8. Well, we'll get back to it, okay? But God is transcendent. Now, that does not mean He does not enter into space. That is, in fact, what the incarnation is all, incarnation is all about, right? God coming into space. So, He does come into space. But He is beyond space. He's not contained by space because space is creation. Oh, but Einstein taught us something else. If you didn't learn it from Scripture, which you could have, Einstein taught us something else. In addition to space, what else is created? And they are interrelated. Time. Time is created. 
and they are in some bizarre way. And I've tried to watch all the, you know, the uh, uh, what is it? The great courses, classes on physics and stuff, you know, and I put those in my TV and I watch them for a while and I'm, I don't understand this. You know, how does time and space, how are they interwoven? And if you if you move too fast then that changes time and, you know, I don't know how that works, but it's very clear now we understand it. Now, we understood it if we read our Bibles many, many centuries ago when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. But time is created. And so there is a sense in which God is outside of time. He comes into time. He operates within time as he does within space. But he is outside of time. And so... The way I express this, and the unfortunate thing is, because I am a creature, I can only express it using time words. <laughs> but the way I express it is that to God, everything is present. Everything is present. Now, that's, that doesn't mean that God... Uh, that doesn't mean that God doesn't understand or know about sequence and time and past, present, and future. He does, of course. He created all that, so he understands all that, but he's independent of it. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was in the past to you Pharisees to whom I am talking, I am. So there's some... Mysterious, mysterious to us because we are so finite and we can't grasp it. There is some sense in which to God, everything is now. Unfortunately, I have to use a time word to say that. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit over a barrel here. I don't know how to explain this to you other than using the words that we understand. Okay. So what that means about God is God never learns anything. God never discovers anything. The omniscience of God means that God knows everything immediately. In His immediate being, He knows everything. He knows Everything that actually will happen. He knows every alternate possibility. He knows every potentiality. He knows every potentiality that might result from that previous potentiality. He knows every contingency. Is your mind boggled yet? I'm going, okay, if I have this, I have, I have two choices before me. Okay, now, it's Mother's Day, so you've probably already decided where you, what you're going to do for dinner after church today. Yeah? But maybe some of you are still grasping, you know, what are we, you know, maybe it's, you know, which restaurant am I going to take mom to, you know. Okay, so where are we going to go to eat? Okay, and you know that you can go to the steakhouse or you can go to McDonald's, okay? And you're trying to choose between those two, okay? So you have these two potentialities, okay? You have these two alternatives, okay? And you're trying to decide, 
Do I take mom to the steakhouse or to McDonald's? I've got a suggestion, but I won't go there. Okay. So you're trying to decide about those two. Okay. Where am I? You know, and you have these. Okay. God knows. God knows now as though it were present tense to him. He knows which one of those two you will decide. Now, if you go to the steakhouse, I recommend that. If you go to the steakhouse, he knows that you're going to leave the church here, pick up mom, and drive safely to the steakhouse and park in a third parking place from the door. He knows that. He also knows that had you chosen to go to McDonald's, that you would have driven to your mother's house and picked her up. He knows the route you would have driven, would have driven, but did not drive because he knows all things. He is omniscient. He knows all these things and he knows you would have driven by such and such route to McDonald's and that you would have parked on the opposite side of the parking lot across from the door. And he knows that in walking from your car to the door, you would have tripped on the curb and fallen and broken your wrist. But he knows that didn't happen because he knows that, in fact, what you really are going to choose to do is go to the steakhouse. Now, what you see as you think about it, as you meditate upon that, you go quickly, you, you know, you start multiplying that out and you say, wait a minute, Rick, this can't be. Because what that gives us is it gives us an infinite number of potentialities, right? And how could it be that God could know an infinite number of potentialities? Because he's infinite. Now, I don't know about you. It might take you a little thinking to do a little bit of work thinking about this. I don't know about you. But what I think about the fact that that's what God's omniscience means, omniscience means, among other things, it means that. That God knows all of these things. I can draw tremendous comfort from that. Because I know that not only knows that, but he is directing in my life so that all things work together for good for those who love God. And so, we've got a lot more to think about this foreknowledge thing. We're not done with it yet. Okay. So, God knows not only what actually will happen, but he knows about all the other possibilities and what would have happened had that route been taken. He knows all that. But something else we need to understand about foreknowledge is foreknowledge has to do with a category we call epistemology. Epistemology is the study of what? How we know. know. The study of knowledge. Okay. So foreknowledge falls in the category of epistemology. But there's another totally different category. And it's and it's the category of causes. What causes things to happen? And it's a whole philosophical realm of study all by itself, separate from epistemology. I think it's called uh, etiology, uh, etiology, something like that. Okay. It's the study of causes. And there's all kinds of different causes. There's ultimate causes and, and efficient causes. And there's all kinds of different causes. And they all mean different things. Okay. And... Uh, and uh, an efficient cause 
is something that actually is the immediate, direct cause of something to happen. Okay. So, uh, there is a car presently parked on the curb in front of my street from Texas. I'm sorry, I apologize, but there's a Texas car parked in my street. Okay. Now, I am, in one sense, the, pardon? <laughs> I am, in one sense, the ultimate cause of that. I hate to admit it, I am the ultimate cause. Because I was a factor in, in bringing the person into the world who parked that car on my street. <laughs> I'm actually pretty proud of her. Okay. But in spite of the fact that she's now from Texas. Okay. So, so I am the ultimate cause. But if you were to give me, if you were to give a ticket for the car being parked there, and it's actually parked legal, so there would be no reason to do so. But if you were to give the car a ticket, you would not give the ticket to me. I'm the ultimate cause. So really, you could blame me, but I'm not the efficient cause. She's the efficient cause. So if you're going to give a ticket, give it to her. Okay? Okay. I don't blame him, God. <laughs> Or giving a deed with my first name. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a whole problem of cause. Okay. When we talk about causes, we're, we're talking about something categorically different than when we're talking about knowledge. And why this is important is because it's important to understand, because some people argue this, and so it's important to understand because they want to blame God for all the evil in the world. Okay. It's important to understand that the fact that God knows with absolute certainty that something will happen does not mean that God causes it to happen. That's a confusion of categories. It's a confusion of categories. And the way this is brought up sometimes by unbelievers when they want to prove that God is the one who caused all sin and all evil and all that sort of thing, all the wickedness in the world. And they say, well, God knew that this was going to happen. He knew it with absolute certainty. He knew this evil thing was going to happen with absolute certainty. And since God knew with absolute certainty that this was going to happen, it could not happen otherwise, right? So, so the fact that I, the, the, so the, so the, the fact that I went out and, and had this immoral relationship with someone, that had to happen because God knew from eternity past, God knew it would happen. There was no way I could change that. But you see, when we argue that way, we're confusing categories. We're confusing the category of epistemology with the category of ideology. We're confusing the category of knowledge and knowing with the category of causes. And so the way the argument goes is, well, if I were really free to act other than what God knew, I would do. If I was really free to go to McDonald's, Instead of go to the steakhouse, God knew I would go to the steakhouse. But if I were really true, I could, at the last minute, sneak and run over to McDonald's. And God would not be omniscient. 
And hence comes the doctrine, the heresy we call open theology. That God does not know everything. And some things take him by surprise. And that is a theology that is becoming embraced more and more within the so-called Christian community. A doctrine of open theology. If you run into it, run away from it. It denies the omniscience of God. The answer to that dilemma is, well, so, I was going to go to the steakhouse. God knew I was going to go to the steakhouse. But I was free. So at the last minute, I changed and I faked the God out. And instead of running right, I ran left. And he was standing there in the middle of the field and I made a touchdown and God is not sovereign. Well, it's an impossibility because of the nature of God. It's an impossibility as much as it's impossible for God to lie or God to sin. Why? Because if at the last moment you had run a fake and instead of running right, you ran left and went to McDonald's instead of the steakhouse, God would have known that. You can't fake God out. He's omniscient. He knows everything as it happens. As though it is present tense. Whether it's past, present, or future. I could get so much kick out of thinking about Jesus saying to the Pharisees before Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. That is just so cool. You know, I mean, can you imagine, apart from the theological implications to the Pharisees, what that did to their minds? You know? <laughs> it really messed them up. Okay, not only because he was using the name of God, but because of what he was actually saying. It's just a fantastic thing about God. And so God knows everything about me. Okay, Now, well, we're, about, we're out of time, okay? So I knew we wouldn't get through these three verses. I, I had a pretty good hunch. Now, I didn't know it with God's certainty, but I, was pretty, but I was pretty sure, okay? So we're going to pick up this idea of God's foreknowledge again next week, and we're going to see where this goes and where this takes us, okay? And ultimately, we're going to get to this exciting idea, this, this glorious thought that your future is sealed in concrete. And even though right now, because of the circumstances you're living through, it feels like it's slipping through your fingers, folks, it's not. Because Paul says, and we'll explore this next week, Paul says that whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son because he wants Jesus to be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay? That we'll look at next week.